It's good to be with you all this morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can open to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1. I want to pray, though, before we get started, and just ask the Lord's blessing on our time in the Word. So let us pray. Father, your kindness, your mercy, your compassion are all made known to us through your Word, and you are good and gracious to give us that. Thank you for your Word that gives us the knowledge of the hope of heaven, the understanding of our world, the encouragement to keep on walking, faithfully trusting in your character. Lord, I ask that you would give us this morning a deeper understanding of the process and the means and the importance of what you have done through giving us your word. Lord, please open our hearts as we uh, pursue this, this topic. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, if you open to Genesis chapter 1, we're going to be there in, our, in the text for the beginning. Um, to get us started this morning. Um, but before we get into the text, I just want to read a few things to sort of get our minds in the scope of our topic. Um, I brought a few things this morning to, uh, to, to help us with that, and we'll get there in a second. But I want to read a scripture verse from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, just to begin. All scripture, the Bible reads, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so, this is some big claims. Uh, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And another big claim is that the man of God may be complete and equipped by this Word of God. These are big claims. And as believers, we believe these. But in the world around us, these are not necessarily accepted facts or ideas. Um, if you were to look at your, your bulletin, um, the back of the bullet, there's an article that says, Living Faithfully in a Sea of Change. That's a book review done by Pastor Jay. And in one of the last paragraphs, there's this line that says, God does speak to moral issues. That's also a controversial topic in our world today. Um, if you look at the back of your, your notes, sermon notes, it says, further, For Further Study. Um, that first line there says the Holy Scriptures. This is the doctrinal statement of Sunset Bible Church. It says, We believe the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be the verbally inspired Word of God, the final authority for faith and life, inerrant in the original writings, infallible and God-breathed. I believe that, and many of us do too, but these are big claims in the, in the face of our world. Big ideas. Um, several years ago, um, actually before I was born, which I guess this is good. That's always good when something's older than you. Um, in 1978, scholars and pastors got together and they wrote a statement called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. I have that written at the last point in your uh, for further study notes. If you Google that, it'll come up. I encourage you to do that and read it. It's a helpful document. But I want to read us just a little excerpt from it. It says, Article 1. We affirm that the Holy Scriptures are to be received as the authoritative word of God. We deny that the Scriptures receive their authority from the church, tradition, or any other human source. And then lastly, I want to recommend a book. It's called Taking God at His Word by Kevin DeYoung. The, the subtitle reads, Why the Bible is Knowable, Necessary, and Enough, and What That Means for You and Me. So I've just touched on a lot of different areas and topics that we can talk about in relationship to the Word of God. 
We could talk about many of those for hours. And today I have to, for sake of brevity, down-select to just a few. So please be patient with me if you have a particular one that you like the most. We may scratch on it lightly. We may not. But it's There's two avenues we could go with this. We could go into the New Testament. We could go to propositional truth, where the apostles say, this is what the Word of God is. And this is indeed true, and the apostles say that. But this morning, I want us to go into the Old Testament. I want us to see the actions of God in relationship to His Word. I want us to see the actions of God in relationship to His Word, and I want us to study those. I want us to think and spend some time on those. So the claim that the Bible has no error or that, is recorded, or that it records the words of God is a concept foreign to our culture. Ours is the age of skepticism. This worldview struggles to reconcile with the claims the Bible makes about itself. So why does the Bible make these claims? In what world does the claim that God is the author of a book with no errors make sense? I want to read that again. In what world does the claim that the God that God is the author of a book with no errors makes sense. Join us as we, live, we listen to how the Bible answers these questions. Our sermon title this morning is, We Believe in the Inspired and Errant Word of God. And I want to defend that and against that question as we go through the text. But first, some definitions. What does it mean to be inspired? And what does it mean to be inerrant? If you flip back to the beginning of your, your sermon notes, you'll have some brief definitions. And I want to read those for us. It says, The Bible records God's word written by men. This is inspired. When we say inspired, we mean that the Bible records what God has written through men. Inerrancy, that's another big word, but it means that the Bible is without error. The Bible is without error. There are more expansive definitions, but these are simple to get us started and get us started on our trajectory of answering that question. So our sermon title, again, is We Believe in the Inspired and Errant Word of God, and I want to talk about that through three different avenues. And the first is to talk about God's Word as it, cre- as it creates. God's Word creates. We're going to talk about that from Genesis 1 through 2. We're going to talk about God's Word attacked in Genesis 3 and Matthew 4, and God's Word and its implications. And we're going to have several texts for that. So the first topic or the first area of research or exploration this morning for us is that God's word creates. If you turn now with me to Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This is the first verse of the Bible. It is the foundational truth. It is what puts every other verse in the Bible in context. It is the foundation on which we can build any understanding of the word of God because it is what God has given us to begin with. It says, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, which means that every single thing we see and the things even we can't see are created by God himself. This is God's scope of authority. It is all-encompassing. God has authority over everything because he has created it. If you think about a software engineer or an engineer that builds a bridge, he builds that bridge, and he is the one that builds it with his hands. He constructs it, and he has the ability to define what it is. If you uh, to have, play a game, you have a rule book, and the author of that game wrote the rule book, and those rules are supposed to, unless someone doesn't read the rule book, define how that game is played. You see, God as creator has authority over his creation. 
God as creator has authority over his creation. And one of the things that is within God's creation is the Bible that we have on our laps and in our hearts this morning, the very word of God. That is an aspect, a part of God's creation. In Genesis chapter 3, or rather Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, it says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. The words, and God said. This records the first words that God has said, and the first words recorded in the Bible. You see, throughout Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, God creates by speaking. He says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Innate to who God is, is the ability to speak and to create through speaking. Words and language are an innate part of who God is. We were to go on to Genesis chapter 1, verse 5. That records, And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Here we see that God is naming things. God gives names to the first day and the first night. God uses his language to describe things. Now, why is all this important? Why are we talking about all the things that God does in the first few steps? One is to describe God's authority, as we talked about. But second, it's because God is going to make mankind in his own image. God is going to make mankind in his own image. And so we, as people, his creation, are going to have some of these same attributes. The idea of naming is something that God has given to us. In, in Genesis two nineteen through 20, God will write... God's word says this, it says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. God creates, God names, and God has given mankind the responsibility of naming as well. We, we see this in our own world. Even though a secular academia doesn't necessarily recognize God in, in America today, they still will gain notoriety from time to time by announcing the discovery of new species of animals. And it'll make the news and will say, wow, look at that new fish or that new insect or this something new. And they'll, they'll have a name that none of us can pronounce. That, that's official Latin name and all these things that go along with naming that animal. That is following in the footsteps of what God has given man, to be able to describe and to name and to, to characterize our world. Even without knowing it, we are still doing it. God creates mankind in his image. We see this in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and verse 27 as well. So let's read that text. And that text reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Unlike the animals, mankind was given dominion over God's creation. For our purpose this morning, the image we carry extends to our ability to hear, understand, and speak with the one whose image we are formed in. 
This essential connection between us and God through language sets us apart from the rest of his creation. An example of this is I have a dog. Actually, my family and I have a dog. And her name is uh, Carolina. She's a uh, beautiful Australian shepherd. She's a year old. She has lots of energy. And one of the things that she demonstrates about this morning's text is, is that humans have innate ability to listen because our dog doesn't listen. So I have this shed in the backyard and I could sit, I could say, Carolina, sit. And she might sit. And then I would say, Carolina, don't eat my shed. Is that going to work? No, it's not. I actually have a fence around my shed so that my dog won't eat my shed because she doesn't understand human language. Dogs, animals do not understand language in the same way that we understand language. And so we uniquely, both sisters, humankind, we uniquely have the ability to relate to God because we are created in God's image. We share his ability to speak, hear, and to listen. We have the ability to receive words from God because we share that image of God. So God, through that medium of language, gives us boundaries. God creates boundaries for mankind. If we go to uh, Genesis 2, 15 through 17, Genesis 2, 15 through 17, we see that first boundary put in place. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis two fifteen through 17. God first gives every tree of the garden for food. Note the kindness of God in this. Oftentimes we get fixated on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because of what happens in Genesis chapter 3, that someone namely Adam and Eve, eat of it, and they perish as God commanded, and death has reigned in our lives of humankind all the way to the present. This is the reality that we face today, but we must not miss the, uh, the fact that God first gave every other tree to Adam and Eve so that they could have food. God cares about his people. God does not put a fence around the tree. Instead, he tells Adam not to eat from it. God does not treat Adam and Eve like a dog. He treats them like a person made in his image. He is relational with them. This exemplifies the unique relationship God's image bearers have with him. God's care in part comes through his word. The last thing I want to take from this section of Genesis is I want to uh, see that God has created us not just the word of God for ladies and not just the word of God for men, but the word of God for all people. The word of God is for everyone. We see that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. We've read this, but let me just uh, read it once more. It says, So God created man his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This ability to understand, to be able to read, to be able to speak, to be able to interact with God through language is not just for men or not just for women. It's for all of us. All of us, brothers and sisters, sit here with the ability to interact with God through his word. God spoke and the world was created. We live in a, world, in a word-created world. God's relationship to his creation is defined by his authority. Nowhere is this more clear than in his relationship to mankind. 
created, defined, and carried out through words. God's word defines his relationship with us. The Bible, or God's word, then defines our relationship with our creator. It is so important that we realize that God has chosen to extend language to us by creating him, or rather creating us in his image so that we can interact with him, so that we can read his word, so that we can understand him. This is no mistake. God has given us his word for a purpose and for a reason. Next, I want to talk about God's word attacked. So we have a definition of the Bible, not because it's attacked, but because it is. We just talked about the fact that God's word has authority. God's word is for all mankind. God's word puts boundaries on our lives through rules. But God's word is also attacked. So this is second order of evidence, you might say, is that we have definitions and we seek to understand God's word today because we want to be able to defend it against attack. So I want to go all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 3, and to talk about the first attack on the words of God. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 reads like this. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? From the beginning, from the very beginning, the enemy of God has directly attacked God's word. Note the question gets what God has said wrong. God had only forbidden one tree, only one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the serpent is from the beginning seeking to change what God has said. The devil comes to Adam and Eve, and specifically to Eve, and he's, from the beginning, he is trying to deceive them, trying to deceive her to mischaracterize God, to lie about what God says, and ultimately to dis, try to discredit God's character. It's not just simply enough to distort what God said. The devil is after distorting God's character. <clears throat> the rest of the scene continues this attack. If we were to pick it up again in verse 2, it would read, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, again contradicting God. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves long claws. This is the first sin, the first rejection of God's laws, the first rejection of who God is, It is the first time that the devil has put forth a temptation to bring people away from God to distort his word. The devil contradicts God's declaration that they would die, and he portrays God as being selfish, wanting to keep back authority and power, specifically the knowledge of good and evil. I think we can see in the reality that every person since Adam and Eve has known the knowledge of good and evil, and every person since then has died, that our good and gracious king had a plan when he said, don't eat from that tree. You see, the devil's lie is a big lie, and God's love and care for us is a big, is big. 
The devil's attack demonstrates that from the beginning, the question of whether we know what God said has been fundamental to the devil's attack. Christians believe the Bible records God's word accurately, or that the Bible is inerrant. The attack on this idea is clearly from the beginning, one meant to attack God himself. Notice also how the devil's attack destroys the character of God. His initial attack declares that God has kept every tree from Eve. He goes on and he says, If we view God through the devil's lies and not through God's word, we will lose sight of the character of the God who made us. Let me read that again. If we view God through the devil's lies and not through God's word, we will lose sight of the character of the God who made us. The distortion of God's word is directly connected to the distortion of our understanding of God himself. So, round one. Adam and Eve versus the devil about God's word. Adam and Eve loses. The word of God is distorted in the understanding of men, and humanity falls. But there's a round two, and I want us to take us to Matthew chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, it would be good to turn to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. There we read these opening words, and it says, uh, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I want to take us to this text because Jesus responds to temptation. He goes into the wilderness and fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Many of us are hungry for lunch. We probably ate probably maximum about four hours ago. Maybe dinner was your last meal, so you're at 12 hours. But either way, that's not even a full day. Jesus chose to not eat for 40 days. That's a humongous amount of self-control. I don't personally have that. Um, I think that in some ways this points to the divine nature of Jesus. But we have Jesus in the state of not having eaten for 40 days is now approached by the devil who tempts him. Adam and Eve had every tree in the garden but one to eat from, and they failed. But Jesus has had eaten for 40 days. He's also in the wilderness, not the garden. And so what does Jesus do? He responds by saying, it is written. Jesus turns to the written word of God. You see, from the time of Adam and Eve to the time of Jesus, the Old Testament, the uh, books of the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi have been written down and recorded. And Jesus turns to those books and he, re- and he recites from the book of Deuteronomy the words that says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, Jesus standing up to that attack rests on the very words of God. He doesn't distort them. He doesn't uh, recite them like an incantation. He relies on their logic. He relies on the clarity, the argument they make. Jesus doesn't see any difference between what God has said and the need to explain it. He merely states it. By doing this, Jesus implies that God's word is clear. He knew what it said, and the devil did as well. It, it was, its meaning was relevant Jesus' actions also teach us that God's word was sufficient. He only needed God's word at this critical moment. Jesus then, in quoting Deuteronomy, is repeating the Bible. At the same time, it is clear he is repeating the words of God himself. Jesus is very interested in taking on the devil's lies 
and he turns to the Bible to defend them. <clears throat> the doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy are necessary, in part because we live in a world run by the devil, who constantly attacks God's word. We should expect these attacks. For each of us, we must reckon with what we think about God's word. Otherwise, it is very clear the devil is more than willing to define it for us. Let me say that again. Otherwise, it is very clear the devil is more than willing to define it for us. We must recognize that we are in a world in which there is the truth of God's word that we are able to understand because of God's authority, because we share his image and can understand language. And we must also realize that that word and understanding of that word is under attack. Now, this brings us to implications. What are the implications of what we have just talked about? I want us to turn to the, um, the New Testament, but if you have your sermon notes, I would turn there uh, and, and have those handy because we're going to go through five different implications, five different implications of the Word of God. But before we do that, I want to take us briefly to talk about Jesus. How do we relate to Jesus and the, and the Word of God? If we were to go all the way to Luke chapter 9, fast forward through Jesus' ministry a few years from his temptation, we would read these words. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, speaking of Jesus, my chosen one, listen to him. This is on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus goes up on the mountain and is witnessed by Peter, James, and John as he's transformed into his heavenly uh, state or where his, his face is shining, his, his radiant, and God is speaking. And God says these words, This is my son, my chosen one, Listen to him. God who spoke and created the heavens and the earth has spoken and given us the command that we need to listen to the words of Jesus. The apostle John takes it one step further in John 1, 1 through 4. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And John is talking here about Jesus. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the Word that was with God. Jesus was the Word that was, that was God. And Jesus was in the beginning uh, with God, and all things were made through him. All things were made through the Word. And if we turn back to Genesis, we see that God, through the Word, made the heavens and the earth. John makes sure that we understand he's talking about Jesus and not some other entity in the John chapter 1, verse 14, where he writes, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God's Son. God has told us to listen to him, and Jesus is also God, as we see in John chapter 1. Therefore, what Jesus said by two, two arguments must be listened to as well. If you have time today, I'd encourage you to read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and other passages where Jesus speaks, and to meditate on what is it that Jesus has said to us. But what about the rest of the Old Testament that's not, and the New Testament that's not a quote of God directly or a quote of Jesus directly? Well, the Apostle Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21 um, while defending his gospel, makes two arguments. First, he says, I'm an eyewitness of the transfiguration. 
I saw God speak to this Jesus, and Jesus and God said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's his first argument. His second argument is that, uh, and I'm just going to read it here for us. It says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. And then here's the point. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, no part of Scripture, comes from someone's own interpretation. So if someone ever makes up the claim that the Scripture is made up by man, Peter is denying it here. He says no one's, no, uh, prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. That is not the case, he says. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And here we see that the all of Scripture falls into this category. All of Scripture, whether it's a direct quote of Jesus or God the Father or if it's uh, some other part of the Bible, is written down by men who are born along by the Holy Spirit. And so now we have a doctrine, a foundation, you might say a worldview, though we've had to run through it quickly, of why we can say in a world like ours that God has spoken. God has the authority to speak and God has given us his word. And just like Jesus, we can trust in the clarity and sufficiency of Scripture to be able to work and live in our world today. So quickly, I want to just go over these five points. It says sufficiency, God's word gives us everything we need to live a life that honors our maker. We saw this in 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17 that we read earlier, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and that it is able to make a man uh, completely equipped for every good work. We saw clarity throughout our text, but uh, not the apostle, Moses himself in Deuteronomy chapter 30 will speak to the people of Israel and say, look, here is the word of God. It's not in heaven that you can't see it. It's not somewhere else that you can't see it. It's right here. The words of God are right here. And brothers and sisters, the words of God are right here on our laps this morning. They're right here on our bookshelves at home. Even for some of us, they're right there on our phones. We, the word of God is not absent from our lives. And Moses' point is, what are you going to do about it? The clarity is there. It's not hidden Let us move forward and listen to it. We've talked about authority. We've talked a little bit, perhaps, about the necessity, but I just want to read one verse to emphasize this. Romans chapter uh, 10, verse 14, reads as follows. It says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed, speaking of unbelievers? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? The word of God is necessary. We cannot understand the gospel by taking a hike in the mountains or taking a walk at Chambers Bay or sitting in our study or sitting in our car in traffic. We cannot comprehend the gospel through the world around us. It is the word of God, God's choosing to be relational with us that brings us the gospel. And lastly, I want to end on the idea of relational. God's word is relational. At every stage of writing the Bible, God has composed it to be relational with mankind. From the very beginning until the very end, the very last word of Revelation, God has written the word of God down to be relational with us. He has created us so that we can relate to him by creating us in his image, and he has chosen to communicate to us 
through God's word to be relational. This is perhaps the most hope-filled aspect of God's word, that this simply isn't a pile of words on a page with various bindings and preserved in various ways through history. No, this is God's choice from the very beginning to make it both possible and to do it to be relational with us, to communicate to us the hope of the gospel that in Jesus Christ, our sins, our violation of the authority of God can be atoned for, to be paid for by God's Son on the cross. That hope comes to us through the word of God. God has sought and is continuing to seek to be relational with us. Let us rejoice that God has not left us, but has continued to speak to us through his word. Let us pray. Father, you are the God who cares about us. You are the God who has spoken through your word, and you are the God who has encouraged us. Some of us, for years, daily, through your word, you have taught us and tutored us, trained us to know your character more fully. For each of us, Lord, I ask that you would help us to be able to hear, understand, and be encouraged by your word. Lord, thank you for all of the kindnesses that you've shown us. Please be with us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.